Thank you, ladies. I appreciate that. I've never heard that song, but what a truth. I remember as uh, Trina was going through her health issues and uh, all the difficulties that go along with that, Trina would often make the statement, I don't know how unsafe people do this. And I agreed with her. I just don't know uh, how we do. I'm so thankful for the Lord's presence in my life. If your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 5, and did I go out again? Guys, just stick to the pulpit mic this morning and we'll forget the, the cordless. Uh, I'm not, probably not going to run around a lot anyhow. Um, and that way uh, we're not in and out. Uh, this is the 10th installment of a series of sermons from Matthew 5, 1 through 12 on the Beatitudes, the blessed attitudes. Uh, we have come to the 10th the one uh, down in verse number 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I'm going to just tell you straight up front, we're probably not going to get that far today. Uh, it's been a month or so since we've, we've been on this study. And uh, before we can come to this last one, before we can even understand it, because to the human mind, there is no blessedness in being persecuted. There's, there's nothing enjoyable about that. And yet the Savior says when it happens, uh, rejoice and be exceeding glad. We rejoice when we get a raise in, in our pay. We rejoice when we get a new car. We rejoice when God grants us a new child or a grandchild. We rejoice in those, but the Savior said, I need you to be the kind of believer. I need you to have a walk with me that is so deep and powerful that when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, you rejoice and you're exceeding glad because there is a blessedness reserved for that type of a Christian. That's a hard truth to swallow. I'm not sure about you. Every time I've read it from the time I got saved 50 years ago and, and I, I've looked at that verse, it, it, my natural mind just says, I do not understand how this can be. So we want to learn that. If the Savior said there's a blessedness there, we ought to want to find out exactly why and how to, how to be a part of that. Let me back up just a little bit. When I was in seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, I lived in a, a rural farming area in western Pennsylvania. The nearest town to us was a, a town called Catanning. Uh, it was about six miles away. Uh, there wasn't much there. Uh, they, uh, the whole time I lived there, there were no fast food places. Right before we moved away, they got a Winkies. Had anybody ever heard of Winkies? It, it, yeah, there's a reason why you never heard of it, okay? It's three steps lower than White Castle if you're trying to find a point of reference there. Uh, it's just a rural farming area, uh, and you know we had to walk uh, quite a distance to get to our next uh, neighbors and that type of thing. I went to a little school. It was called Dayton Junior Senior High School. In grades 7 through 12, there were 360 students in our school. Uh, very small, again, farming area. I went to school with Amish kids up through eighth grade. Uh, and that was just the norm in, in that part of the state. In spite of our school's very small size, the Dayton Senior High School basketball team in the 1960s, when I was there, the late 60s, um, they, were, they were almost yearly the state basketball champions in their division. 
again, you've got a small school. You've got a small pool of athletes to draw from. And yet in that place, uh, year after year, it was a championship, state championship basketball game. Very unusual type situation. Uh, I remember in, in seventh and eighth grade, some of my friends are looking forward to high school. Uh, they were they already on the JV team, and they're looking forward to being a part of that high school team. And we began to hear that uh, the coach of the basketball team was a, he was obviously very talented, very knowledgeable about what he did, but he was a no-nonsense, don't-mess-with-me kind of person. Every year when, when the guys would come for the first of the tryouts for the basketball team, uh, he let them know in no uncertain terms, if you're going to be on my team, it will not just be because you dribble well and shoot well and play defense or offense very well. He said there's some other things that you're going to have to be able to do. Number one, for all of basketball season, no candy. No soda. No potato chips, pretzels, cheese curls, no junk food of any kind, no dessert of any kind, no girlfriends. So he said, I, I know some of you have them, but you're going to take a break. By the way, this was before the days of cell phones and all that kind of stuff where they're together all day at school and then they're texting each other on the way home and they're texting each other during dinner and FaceTiming and all that kind of stuff uh, and so forth. More married than most married people are, you know, that type of thing. Uh, you just had to set aside the girlfriend uh, and you had to be totally focused on basketball. Uh, obviously, if he found out that one of his players uh, was caught smoking cigarettes or with alcohol, they're off the team. Uh, if they were doing some of those lesser things, they got one warning and then they were off the team. And, and he didn't care if you were the best player on the team. If you weren't about to abide, uh, abide by his requirements, he just deemed you as unworthy for his team. Now, in today's woke mentality, where nobody's allowed to tell us anything, uh, that wouldn't float at all. But back in, in, in that day, uh, guys were lining up for the privilege of being on that basketball team. The idea of no soda, no girlfriends, no junk food and all that kind of stuff for, for you know, 10 or 12 weeks, however long basketball took and, and, and all that kind of stuff. To them, that was no sacrifice. That was no problem at all because they saw a bigger picture. I want to be on this championship team. They didn't chafe at the rules. They, they weren't arguing about it. They weren't upset. Well, I can't believe we're not allowed. They knew it all when they came in. They were proud of the fact that, that for those 12 weeks, uh, you know, they were abiding by this because it allowed them to be a part of this amazing team. They got to learn from this amazing coach. As human beings, we have a tendency to resent rules and requirements, don't we? We chafe at them. One of the first things a little child learns to say is no. There's just something about us. The Bible says foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Uh, our sinful nature manifests itself very, very early. And that sinful nature stays with us through adulthood. And even after we get saved, we're still battling with it, aren't we? And we, have, we sometimes chafe at things even when it comes to the Christian life. 
Let's face it, folks. There are some thou shalt nots in the Bible. And to preach and proclaim them is not legalism. It's Bible Christianity. There are some thou shalts in the Bible where the Lord says, you're my child, I'm your father, I expect some things out of you. Yea, I go further than that, I command you on some of these things. And our human nature wants to bristle at all of that because you see, when we're like that, we're focusing on the list of rules. And yeah, there are some. And we're missing the relationship. And God wants us to be concerned about the relationship first and foremost. Because here's an an amazing truth. God's always more concerned with what we are than with what we do. Please get a hold of that. He's more concerned about what we are than what we do. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were meticulous about what they did. They had combed through the law of Moses so, so diligently and so minutely, and they had all of the commandments listed out, and then uh, in their own foolishness, they added to the commandments of God. That's why Jesus talked about the tradition of the elders, and so on and so forth. And I mean, they were sticklers about the doing. And, and they, I mean, every little thing, uh, th- their routine for washing their hands before dinner would drive most of us insane unless we were OCD. How many times they had to wash it, what direction they had to wash their hands and, and all that kind of stuff. How many times before they could sit down and begin to eat? None of that, by the way, found in your Bible, but they were meticulous on that. Yet, yet on the inside, Jesus said, you're just full of dead men's bones. On the outside, you look clean. On the outside, you look awesome. He said, but you're really just like a mausoleum. You're a whited sepulcher that on the outside, indeed, you look beautiful. But inwardly, you're ravening wolves. You're, you're full of dead men's bones. They thought that what, the, what they did was more important than what they were. The Savior said the most important commandment, and I'll add a little here paraphrasing, is not about did you, did you wash your hands this way before you ate a dinner? Did you do this? Did you do that? The most important commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. The second is like unto thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He said on these two, that's all about relationship. He said on these two hang all the law and the prophets. Look, you can have everything right on the outside. You can be doing what you ought to do and be totally wrong inside. And God is not impressed at all. But if you're right on the inside, if I'm right on the inside, I will always be right on the outside. That's how it follows. Doesn't always work in reverse. Again, the Pharisees. Your Bibles are open to Matthew 5. Could I ask you to turn to Matthew 23? Matthew 23. Love to hear the sound of pages turning. And I realize we're in a technological age and, and some are using your phone and different things like that. And I'm not, I'm not against that or whatever. I'm just, I'm an old geezer. Uh, I'm so old school. I love the paper Bible and I love to hear that sound and I'm just throwing that in. I don't know why. It's just there. Verse one, then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, meaning they have authority. Yes. 
They have legal authority within our culture. That's what he was saying. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. Okay, they're in, they're in charge. They're in control. They're in leadership. So if they tell you to do something, observe it and do it. But look at this. But do ye not after their works. Uh, it sounds like a contradiction. Don't be like them for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens, grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They had works. And they had good works. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Savior will address them. They gave and they gave uh, specifically. They, I mean, if you, if you made a Pharisee a pumpkin pie for, for uh, Thanksgiving, they would sit down and, and, and figure out how much it weighs and how much it would have cost you to make that thing uh, and all the ingredients, and they would have tithed off of the gift of a pumpkin pie. They were that, I mean, Jesus said you tithe of mint and cumin and anise and so forth. Those are spices. That's how meticulous they were. Um, he, he said, but they're all, their giving is just to be seen. It's just to impress people uh, about it. Um, they're praying. Man, they prayed long prayers, long prayers. Uh, and, and the Savior said again in Matthew 6, they're just doing it to be seen of men. Don't be like that. So they had the doing right, but they had the being entirely wrong. How many are following this? Okay. Um, so he, he goes on. He says, all their works they do to be seen of men, for they make broad their phylacteries. That was a little box in which they uh, wrote Bible verses on some, some parchment, put it in this box, and they'd strap it either around their forehead or on generally, I'm sorry, on their right arm, generally, uh, and so forth. Uh, it was supposed to be a reminder for them that they were the children of God and the word of God was to guide their thoughts and their actions. Most people are right-handed. How many knew that? Awesome people are left-handed. Um, how many knew that? How many agree? We're having revival this morning. Um, that's what the phylactery was all about. It was never really commanded in scripture as such. But uh, the Pharisees, man, they decided it wasn't about reminding themselves to, 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 to let the word of God govern, govern their thoughts and their actions. It became a symbol to everybody else. Look how spiritual I am. Look, you can tell by the size of the big box on my forehead or on my arm. They made broad their phylacteries so everybody else would go, ooh, wow rather than, dude, that looks awful. Uh, it was all for show. Their doing was fine, but their reason for doing was wrong. They loved the uppermost rooms at the feast and chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, rabbi, rabbi. He said, uh, I, I know they sit in Moses' seat, so observe what they're telling you, but don't become like them. See, they, they lost the relationship. When the Son of God came, most of the Pharisees hated him. They were part of that group that led the charge, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. They led their nation into destruction because of their rejection of Jesus Christ, their Messiah. So as we begin our look back in Matthew 5 at this final beatitude, we're going to learn some things about it that are going to really reveal, am I a beatitude believer? Is this really who and what I am? This is a different 
beatitude than all the others that have come before. Could you look at verse 10? Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Very, very different if you were to take the time, and we will eventually to go back and just briefly look at all the others starting in verse number three. It's different because this is prefaced by what other people do to us. Blessed are the, the poor in spirit has nothing to do with your treatment of me. It's about my relationship with God. Do I see myself as the lady saying, I need thee every hour? Do I truly believe that without God, I can do nothing? John chapter 15. Do I truly believe that poor in spirit? That's about my relationship with God. Blessed are the meek is how do I treat other people? How do I see other people? Is that true? Blessed are the merciful. Sadly, some of the most unmerciful people on planet earth are people who profess that they know Jesus Christ as Savior. Blessed are the merciful. That's how I see other people, especially those who have sinned against me. Blessed are the merciful. But blessed are you when men shall persecute you. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. That has nothing to do with, with uh, how I see you or my relationship with God. It has to do with how I'm treated by other people. In this case, treated badly. Very different than the other ones before. it. It's different. Because this verse teaches us very clearly, if I am a beatitude believer, if I'm poor in spirit, genuinely, if I'm mourning and, and longing to be more like Christ and grieving each time I fail him and it bothers me and I, and, and I grieve over that, that thing, if I'm truly meek and merciful, if I'm a peacemaker and all of those kind of things, it will make me so different from the world that the world will react badly. We live in a day and age where Christians are being taught that the world is supposed to love us and uh, so we need to compromise on this, that, and the other things so the world will like us. That's not a Bible teaching. That is, we're supposed to live in such a way that the Savior is pleased with us. Turn in your Bibles to John 15. John 15. The Savior says in verse 18, he's talking to his disciples. It's the night before the cross. And notice some of the things he's telling them. If the world next, verse 18, John 15, 18, if the world, next word, church, hate you. That's a pretty strong word. If the world hate you. Is our world capable of hate? I, I heard a news uh, report yesterday. A young lady was speaking, giving eulogy at her father's funeral. And she stood up and she said, I will not honor my father. I will spit on the ground that he walked upon. I see him as a terrible human being. And, and I will not say one. And she just went on this rant. Do you know why she hated her father? He voted for Donald Trump. Yeah, this world's capable of hate over some stupid things. But understand this, the Savior's talking to believers. He said, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. How much did they hate Jesus? They killed him. They murdered him. 
He said, when you're going through that and the world turns on you because of your walk with God, if the world turns on you because you're breaking the laws and you're being, you're being cantankerous, you're, you're breaking the rules, you're, you're sinning, you're doing wrong, uh, and I'm not talking about where the, the world says you can't pray, but you pray anyhow. I'm talking about you're stealing at work. I'm talking about you're a lazy worker. I, I'm talking about you're mean to people and all that, and the world hates you. Uh, don't marvel at that. You're getting exactly what you deserve. That's not persecution. That's punishment. Everybody understand the difference? He said, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, we get saved. We're not of the world anymore. We're of the kingdom of God. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all, things, all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Throughout the, the history of the Christian church, persecution has been present 100% of the time somewhere in our world. It's going on today. It's going on. It's even beginning to happen in our American culture. The negative attitude they have towards the Bible, the negative attitude they have towards Christianity, towards Christ, uh, towards the rulership of the Lord in our lives. Um, you know, one presidential candidate can get on and talk about how she channels the spirit of Eleanor Roosevelt. A Christian politician can get on there like uh, former Vice President Mike Pence and talk about how he talks to God and listens for God to direct him in his life. And he'll be mocked and ridiculed. And the other person uh, that's channeling the spirit of somebody dead who can't do a thing for them be exalted and praised. It's a world we live in. Savior said, don't, don't even marvel what's going to happen. That's what they did to me. That's what they'll do to you. Now, to the average Christian, that's the time we, we look for the exit sign. But would you understand with the crowd that was around the Savior, they didn't understand it all. Judas has already walked out of the room. He's left with 11 men that have spent their time with him. They don't fully understand it all, but they would embrace this teaching it, uh, so in such a way that when persecution came, they didn't cave in, they didn't run, they didn't fold. They stood faithful to the death. They stayed faithful. We hold them up as the heroes of the faith, do we not? And every one of them that we hold up in that light is someone who suffered hardship for the cause of Christ. Now, we might be tempted to be like Peter when the Savior warned him, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. The Savior warned him that Satan was coming after him and wanted to just rub him into nothing. And Peter's response is, Lord, I am ready. Bring it on. I am ready to go to prison. I'm ready to go to death and, and though all these people should deny you, and he's pointing to the other 10 guys in the room, I will never deny you. And Peter thought he was ready. What happened when persecution started? I mean, just a little bit. All they were saying is, aren't you one of his disciples? They weren't threatening him. They weren't threatening to have him crucified too. They just wanted to know if he was one of the disciples. I never knew him. I never knew him. By the way, the first two times the question came, it was little girls. 
Peter's bravado fell apart in the, in the face of a little maid. What a man. The last time he cursed and he swore before them all, denied that he knew him and went out and wept bitterly. And Peter learned very quickly, I'm not as ready as I thought I was. Not as ready as I thought I was. Thank God Peter didn't stay that way. Thank God Peter learned how to get a hold of God, learned, learned what it was all about. He's the man that stood up boldly on the day of Pentecost and preached. And at his preaching, there were 3,000 saved and baptized. He's the man that stood up in the temple in Acts chapter 3 and preached the word of God and 5,000 men believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the man who was told never to speak in the name of Christ again and he said, we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. We ought to obey God rather than men. And that man became bold to the place of death for Christ. But there was a time in his life he wasn't ready. And he was ashamed of that time. But God worked in his life. Peter allowed that to happen. If we're going to go back to Matthew 5 and we're going to understand the blessedness that the Savior talks about in verse number 10, we're going to have to just consider, am I the kind of believer that the Lord can trust like that? Can I ever know that blessedness? It's Bible. You don't have to turn to all these places in Acts chapter 5. Verse 41, all of the apostles were beaten, not just Peter and John. They were all beaten before the Jewish Sanhedrin and they walked out. And the Bible says in Acts 5, 41, and they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. How many of you love being mistreated? Nobody. How many get mad when you're mistreated? Come on, you know you do. I've heard some of you. I, I, I've seen some adults, you don't get your own way and you make three-year-olds look mature. We can't even handle somebody that doesn't see that the light turned green. It happened to me yesterday. Guy set at a yellow arrow or a green arrow and waited, it, waited till it turned yellow and then he went. Father, forgive them for their blithering idiots. You know, that's the, that's the way we are. But to come to a place to be persecuted for righteousness sake, for the name of Christ, and it doesn't bring about an arrogance about us. It's not a sadistic thing. It's I can't believe that I'm counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ who suffered everything for me. What a privilege to do that. The three Hebrew men in Daniel chapter three that were about to be thrown into a burning fiery furnace by an arrogant king named Nebuchadnezzar, a man who raised a golden idol to himself uh, some 70 feet tall out in the plains of Dura and commanded all of his government officials, it would have been hundreds if not thousands of individuals, that when they heard the sound of this massive orchestra play, they all had to bow and worship the, this golden image, in, in essence, worshiping him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three Hebrew men, were in that crowd. They were government officials in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. When the music started and that multitude dropped to their knees, here they stood. They would have stood out like the Grand Tetons stand above the rest 
of the Rocky Mountains. It is a startling difference. And everybody knew that they were standing and they knew that everyone knew that. They knew the price tag for their actions, but they knew they had to obey God. They're brought before the king. He's furious at them. He is in a, he's in a literal rage. And, and he says, don't you know what I can do? And, 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 and I'm going to give you another chance and so forth. And the Bible says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we're not stressing out about what we're supposed to say. They're not being flippant. They're not being frivolous. They're not being mouthy. They're just saying, we're not stressing about this. The answer to the solution for us is a very easy one. They said, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. They said, we, we know what our God can do. He's able to do that. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Notice they didn't say he'll deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. We know that God did, but that part hadn't been written in their story yet. You understand? They said, uh, he's able to deliver us out of the furnace. He can make sure that we never go in there. But uh, understand this. Um, he can also deliver us out of thy hand. We might go into the furnace and we might die, but we'll be in heaven where you can't touch us. Amen. Can't scare us with heaven. But if not, even if God doesn't deliver us, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. We hold those three men up as examples, don't we? But what would we have done the day the music started? Whole lot easier to bow. Whole lot safer to bow. I mean, everybody else is bowing. And surely some of those that are bowing don't like the king very well either, but they don't want to go into a burning, fiery furnace. They may worship other gods, other than the God represented by the golden thing, but they value their own head, they value their own lives. So they'll bow whether they mean it or not. They could offer it every other excuse. We can bow doesn't mean we're worshiping the king, but it looks like it. It looks like it. You just look like everybody else. You look, you look just like every other pagan on their knees. They said, no, we serve one God and we're not even bothered by this. I have to ask myself the question, if I was with them today, with them on that day, would there still been only three men standing or would there have been four? Think about it. You say, well, I would have stood. Are you sure about that? That's a Peter response. Be careful, be careful about those kind of things. Stephen, Acts chapter six and seven, the first martyr of the Christian church. A man full of faith and wisdom. Uh, a, a, a man that was a, a mighty preacher. God did miracles through him. He was the first person who was not an apostle through whom God did miracles in the early days of the church. Even those with whom he wit that he witnessed to that didn't like him and didn't agree with him, the Bible says they could not withstand the spirit by which he spake. He wasn't cantankerous, ornery, in your face, rip your face off. He was, he was kind and loving and passionate and taught them the scriptures, taught them who Jesus Christ was. And they didn't like his message, but they couldn't argue with his spirit. Um, 
but they, they were against him. They were going to take him outside the city. They would stone him. And here's what the Bible says in the middle of all of that. The persecution started. The council's mad at him. They're eventually going to uh, gnash on him with their teeth. They're going to bite him and gnaw on him like a dog on a bone. This is, all, this is all beginning to happen. And the Bible says in Acts 6, 15, and all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. How many of you know that we can tell a lot about a person by their eyes? How many know that? Several people walked by me today. How you doing? And they'd smile and say, fine. I said, but your eyes say otherwise. Puffy because they've been maybe sick a little bit. Puffy maybe because they've been crying a little bit. It's kind of hard to hide it, isn't it? So they're looking at this man and they hate everything about this man. But when they're looking at him, his face looks like the face of an angel. I don't know that it was glowing or anything like that. There was just, there was something different about it. He wasn't glaring back at them with hatred. He wasn't glaring back at them, clenching his jaw, muttering under his breath. Yeah, you're a bunch of heathen pagan. You're the ones that crucified my Lord. You're going to burn on a lake. Of None of that. They looked on him and they saw this beautiful face of a man totally at peace with his God as he lay dying. Some of his final words, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. If that had been most of us, we, were have, we would have the father lay that sin and a whole bunch of other ones to their charge. But Stephen wasn't like that. Stephen was a beatitude believer. He had it. He had it in his heart. He had it in his heart. Uh, we look at Hebrews 11. We look throughout the Bible. Uh, these people that we say we respect and, and sometimes even revere, um, there, there's something in us that says, boy, I'd like to be a Christian like that. But then when the rubber meets the road, it becomes a whole different thing. Because you see, it's a whole lot easier to just have a Christianity lets us come and go as we please. We, we don't want too much commitment to this church thing or this serving the Lord thing. We, we want to, we, we yeah, we're saved and we're on our way to heaven, but it, we don't want it to cost us anything. We've missed the whole point of the Beatitudes. We, we are, we're actually choosing to live as second-class Christians when God has something so much better for us, so much better. If anything, our study of the Beatitudes has convinced me, I don't know what it's done to you. I, I, that's between you and your God. It's convinced me afresh and anew each time I sit down to study and prepare for the next installment that God has called me to a higher life He's called me to a more blessed life. And I am a fool if I walk away from that. I am, I am limiting myself if I'm not willing for that to happen. This last week, this is sort of a gym story. Haven't told you one in a while. Uh, this last week, Tuesday and Wednesday, I, uh, I, I got to spend a few days at uh, St. Francis Hospital up in, up in Hartford. And uh, Wednesday morning, I had a chemical stress test uh, to see if there was heart damage, a heart attack, that type of thing going on. It, the whole process took about uh, two hours. 
the tech that was in charge of the whole process, there were half a dozen other people there, but the man in charge was a guy, uh, his name is Joe. Uh, Joe was about as big as him, tad broader, um, and you, you could just tell by looking, this guy spent as much time in the gym as he did anywhere else. He was just one of those big guys. Very, very nice guy. Uh, when he was first checking me in, once they had brought me up there, uh, I had one of those jolts in pain. You see me sometimes grab my chest. I had a, I had a good one, and, and I grabbed my chest in the middle of a sentence, and I had to stop talking, and, and I had to wait till it, uh, it, it subsided. I was already hooked up to a monitor, and my blood pressure went through the roof. He thought I was having a heart attack right at that moment and waited till it passed. I said, no, this is just my life. This just happens all day, every day, all night, every night. He said, not taking any chances and ran out and got the, the lead cardiologist to come down and just be, be assured of that. He was a good guy, very thorough guy. Uh, and there was a lot, lot that was involved uh, in this, and I won't go into the details of it, but um, after they, inje they injected radioactive dye, waited a half an hour, first set of pictures, that took a half hour. Took me out, injected me with stuff that made uh, my heart rate go way up. Uh, longest, worst minute of my life. That passed another 30 minutes I waited. Then they did the same pictures over again. That took 30 minutes. Joe was getting me hooked up with, with all the cameras and monitors for the last set of pictures. And, and he, he, uh, he's been all business up until now. Very nice, very caring, very concerned. But he said, I just finished typing in your information. He said... I cannot believe that you're going to be 65 in a couple days. I'm like, well, thank you so much for reminding me. Go away. He followed it up with this. He said, I thought you were about 50. Joe is my new best friend. He is on my Christmas list. He is in my will. He said, I thought you were about 50. And then he went on to say, considering, and he said, I mean this well, um, the age that you were at, he said, you're in incredibly good shape. So I got to tell him about my trainer, Sam, and, and how we've been working out ever since I'd lost my leg. And, and, you know, he wanted to know what kind of things you do. And I told him and all that. He said, I don't know your trainer, but he said, would you please tell him to keep doing what he's doing because it's working? So Friday... Um, the hospital cut me loose and I, they said, it's not my heart. I'm going to go see Sam. I'm going to train. And we were de doing deadlifts and bench pressing and all that kind of stuff. Talk to me about the wisdom of that later. All you want. I'm still not listening. Um, but uh, Sam and I were talking and I told him about Joe's comment to me. I said, I just want you to know, I, uh, you I gave a shout out to my trainer, to this guy that I'll probably never see again, uh, that type of thing and, and uh, so forth. And I told uh, Sam all about it. And then Sam made this statement. He said, in all my years of training, I've never had a client who has the commitment and the dedication and the mindset that you have. He said, I couldn't train you if you didn't have that. Um, I wasn't fishing for a compliment. I was seeking to compliment the man that I credit with any success in that area of my life. My point is, Somebody up in a hospital just by looking could tell that I, I take care of myself, that I try to be fit, that I, that I exercise, that I work out. And it all pointed back that there's a trainer. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're almost done. That's what preachers say when they're not almost done. 
Acts chapter 4. This is in the middle of the tribunal against Peter and John. The Sanhedrin wants them to stop preaching in the name of Christ. They resent it greatly. Look, if you would, please, to verse number 13. This is after Peter's first sermon with them. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and here's this phrase, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, meaning they looked like fishermen because that's what they were. They weren't refined. They had the speech of Galileans, the northern part of the country. The, the refined people in Jerusalem thought the people of Galilee were hillbillies. They tend to look down on the phrase of the day, can any good thing come out of Galilee? They, they looked down on them and Peter and John represented that region by everything about them, their dress, their, their speech and all of that. They perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. The Bible says they marveled and here's why. And took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Amen. Look, I'm, I'm happy that Joe noticed that I work with a trainer. It was obvious. But that does not matter at all in the eternal scheme of things. The issue is, do the people around us know that we have been with Jesus? It ought to be visible. Amen. We have talked about this an awful lot. Jesus saw their faith. The, the Bible says that Barnabas saw the grace of God when he walked into the church at Antioch. James said, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Our relationship with God ought to be a visible thing. And it's not just in the list of things that we do and don't do. There is no such uh, to-do list in the Beatitudes. It's not there. It's a be this, be poor in spirit, be one of those that mourns, longing always to be more like Christ and grieving in the ways that you know that you're not. Be meek and merciful, be a peacemaker and, and so forth. It's all about what you are. And if you are what you are, it'll show. Especially when you step out in that world, because if you are truly the light of the Lord, as we are taught in scripture, when you step out in darkness, it's going to be visible. I'm going to understand what I'm saying. The Bible says, finally, be of all, all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. That's an accusation or a criticism. You get criticized, so you criticize back. He said, don't be like that. But contrary wise, blessing when somebody speaks badly about you, don't speak badly about them. Find something good to say about them. Knowing that ye are thereunto called. Why? That ye should inherit a blessing. I'm a believer. And Brother Rob talks about me behind my back. So I talk about that way. The Bible calls that backbiting. If you're talking about somebody and they're not there, that's backbiting. How many are okay on that? So Brother Rob talks bad about me behind my back and I find out about it. So I talk bad about Rob behind his back to Tim. That's railing for railing. Zero blessing. I forfeited it. Oh, I might feel better about myself because I got the last word. No blessing from God. God's not pleased. God's not impressed because not, not impressed, that's not what he's called me to. For hereunto are ye called, 
that ye should inherit a blessing. So he badmouths me behind my back. Tim tells me about it. I say, but you know, Rob's a good dad. I've seen him with his kids. Boy, he takes time for them and he loves his kids. He's such a good dad. And I don't even address the things the big jerk said. I mean, the things that he said about me. The Bible says my father looks down and said, that's the way a Christian behaves. Thou shalt inherit a blessing. Peter goes on. For he that will love life and see good days. Is anybody in here? You want to love life and see good days? Anybody like that? Four, five. Okay. The rest of you. Sorry. Here's how you do it. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil. That means shun evil. Stay away from it. Push it away and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. It's all about that heart. Put God in such a high place in your heart and life that it's seen, that people know you love God. Not in a bragging way, not in a Pharisee way of just, it's all for show, but it's so real that it's just seen. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Here it is, 1 Peter 3, 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Has anybody asked you if you're a Christian? I don't mean they were witnessing and they were gonna give you a tract. I mean, they saw something about you and said, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you born again? A couple of weeks ago, I was in the hospital. I could give more hospital illustrations than I do gym illustrations now. And uh, they're checking me in. It was up here in mid-state. And the young lady came and checked me in. And, and I saw that she had a cross attached to her, a wooden cross attached to her name badge. Uh, it, it was there. And, and she was taking care of me. And she was extraordinarily kind. And they were so busy. They were, they were almost overrun with patients, people in beds in the hall and so on and so forth. And they were taking extraordinarily great care of me. And she was one of those. I mean, just going out of her way. And I saw the little cross there and I'm just watching everything about her. And I said, are you a Christian? She said, yes. I said, I mean, are you a born again Christian? She said, yes. The Lord Jesus is my savior. And she told me she goes to a Baptist church uh, somewhere down in, in New Haven and so forth. Um, and it just, it just stood out. Uh, Peter said that you are to have such a life that people watch you and they're going to ask you, what is it about your faith that is so real? Are you a believer? Do we have that kind of Christianity or when we're out there, are we talking, singing, acting, dressing, living just like they do? And they see no difference. Are we treating people, talking, telling the same jokes, singing the same foul music, filled with the same filthy words that they're singing? I'm, I'm gonna guarantee you, if you're like that, Nobody's going to walk up and say, there's something different about you. 
What is it? And you get to tell them about Jesus. We are to live in such a way that people notice that there's a difference. I'm glad Joe noticed that I work with a trainer. But it needs to be more than that. Like I said, in the grand scheme of things, that doesn't matter. I want them to know that I know Jesus. Because if I don't have that in me, I can never understand the 10th beatitude. Never. But I need to.